folks. Open up your Bibles if you're not there already. Genesis chapter 1. we got to get going, so let's bow our hearts in prayer. Father, this morning we declare with the psalmist in 119 where he said, Your word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. Lord, I ask this morning that as we delve into your word in Genesis 1, that indeed your word would light the way and show us where we stand, that we might behold our God. We pray this to the glory of your name. Amen. So today we're looking at the question of creation. What is creation? And Creation itself, um, if you know the 39 Articles of Religion, does not have a particular article dedicated to it. However, it is mentioned and implied in Article 1. We're going to look at that in a moment. And it is, in fact, presumed in all of the 39 Articles. Because it is critical to our Christian understanding and our Christian worldview that God created the heavens, and the earth. Creation is essential to our Christian worldview because it's in creation and in our understanding of creation that we see God. Uh, Jonathan Edwards, quite some time ago, wrote a book entitled The End for Which God Created the World. A brilliant book. I highly recommend it to you. You can borrow it off my shelf if you'd like. And the point is that In all of creation, God created the world, the cosmos, with one primary end in mind. God created everything that exists to show forth his glory. Now, I want you to think about that just for a moment this morning on this beautiful snowy day. This means that Absolutely everything that is created in time and space is all ultimately working toward one purpose, and that is the glory of God. So look at the beautiful snow outside right now and remind your soul of this. Every unique snowflake declares the glory of God. Every raindrop that falls, every gloriously colored petal on a flower in a field in the middle of nowhere where no one will ever see it, shows forth and declares the glory of God. You know of my household's fascination with the wild squirrels in our backyard. And just the other day, I was looking at my favorite squirrel, Jesse. Jesse came over to sit down beside me, and as Jesse was sitting there, I was looking at his fur, and he gets right up close, and you know, I noticed that his fur is glorious. It is multicolored, and it is intricate, and it is beautiful in ways that a lot of women would pay $300 to have that ombre. Now, consider that for a moment. Imagine the God who is so captivated with beauty and elegance and intricacy that the fur on a squirrel that lives in the orchard would even be so beautiful and so glorious, it would go unnoticed most of the time, but every moment of every day, of every year, of every time, 
It is singing forth the glory of God. Jesse's fur. No, really, press into this. It means that everything in the created order, everything in the theater of time and space is singing out the glory of God. Every humpbacked whale, every chipmunk, the sweetness of an apple when you bite into it declares the glory of the creator God. This is the end to which everything was created and existed that God would be glorified. And so the Christian man or woman, you know, we, we take stock of this and we realize that creation is itself the theater of time and space in which Yahweh God is glorified. And chiefly and finally in the saving of sinners. But that's a sermon for another day. So Christian friends, it's vitally important that we think rightly about the creation. Because it informs our beliefs and our understandings of God. And secondly, it's really important to get creation right. Because in another sense, it is the foundation upon which all of our other beliefs are built. Right? You knock the legs out from under this one and the whole thing crumbles. And perhaps that's true of this series through doctrine, that you can think of every one of these weeks, every one of these doctrines of the church as accumulating and building upon one another. Certainly that's the case with the doctrine of creation. And so today we're going to take time to dive into that question, what is creation? So hands up if you were raised in a public school system. Just put your hand up. Yeah, me too. That's right. Now, if you were raised in the public school system, uh, your default to thinking about the cosmos is to think about it in Darwinian evolutionary terms. Is that correct? That's the new default setting for everyone who goes through public schools and probably beyond. That we live in a world that's defined as materialistic, and yet, as Christian men and women, we hear Claudine read Genesis 1, and it says what? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And so as we enter into this, this discussion, this sermon around creation, one of the first things we have to recognize is that there is, within every one of our minds and hearts, a understanding of the relationship between the Bible and science. Okay, that's, that's what we bring to the reading of the account in Genesis chapter 1. And so what is your thought on the relationship between biblical accounts and science? Does one serve the other? Are they hostile to one another? Are they at odds? Have you worked out a system where the biblical account and the scientific theories actually complement one another and it actually works together in some kind of harmony? You've got you to think about what is your understanding of the relationship between the Bible and science? Well, 
For those of you who would say that you've worked out some way in which science and the Bible complement one another, that's probably the best way, but I just want to caution care. Far too often when Christian men and women say, look, I've figured out a way to make sense of the Bible and of modern science, find a way for them to be complementary, actually what they're saying is, I have made the biblical account subservient to the science of our present day. So be careful. I know that because it's a road that I went down for many years. C.S. Lewis called this scientism. See, science is very good and helpful, but it can become a religion unto itself that will displace and try to make the biblical account subservient to it. Well, there are a few places in Scripture where this question of science and the Bible come more into focus than in the creation account. And, and so, I just, I, wanted, I want you to think about this before we get into Genesis 1. How do you hold science with the Bible? We come to Genesis 1 loaded with presuppositions and presumptions about Darwinian evolution and materialism. But those were not the questions that the original audience would have ever asked. See, we come to Genesis chapter 1 in the creation account and we ask questions like, how and when and how long over how long a period of time? But the original audience, when God inspired this to be written as his word, they asked, who? They asked, how is our God different from the pagan gods that surround us as revealed in the way that he created? Who? They asked, why? For what purpose was creation created? And so what you can see here from what we're talking about and from your own experience is that there has been a clear departure over the last century in particular. The Bible holds very clearly that God created the universe. Science purports a theory of a universe that is materially unfolding in a series of mutations and developments. Those are diametrically opposed views of how everything came to be. I, I want to get into just a couple of quick apologetic questions again before we get into the text. The first one is, um, this, is a, this is a problem with the scientific account as it stands today. It's sort of a philosophical problem. Let me see if I can do my best to explain it. In Latin, the Latin is um, ex nihilo nihilo fit. It translates to out of nothing, nothing comes. Okay, or, or to say it another way, um, the problem with the current model of, of Darwinian evolution, if you drill back far enough, if you go far enough upstream on that logic, is that in fact we all know from science and from intuition that nothing comes from nothing. That there has to be a first cause. Let me say it differently. 
The massive flaw right now in popular science is that nothing can come from nothing because nothing is nothing. And so if anything exists, it has to come from something. Are, are you tracking with me? I know it's a little convoluted, but, but that's the logic, right? Do a thought experiment right now. Just maybe even close your eyes. And for a moment, I want you to think about nothing. Well, it's impossible, isn't it? Because the moment that you try to conceive of nothing, you're conceiving of something. You're thinking about the concept of nothingness. And so, to even conceive of the idea of nothing requires that you're actually taking a negative approach to something that exists. In other words, existence presupposes everything as far back as we can go. And so if a world exists in time and space, if you are sitting here right now on a chair, if you're breathing air, right, if this world exists, then it had to originate. And this is where the biblical account has endured while scientific theories have come and gone. Because theologians refer to God as the first cause. Look at Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And, and so the first apologetic question when we're getting at to the, the validity and legitimacy of the biblical account of creation is this. We believe that before the world existed, there was God. And that he is the source and the beginning of everything that is. Behind the beginning of the cosmos was the God who caused. You think, okay, that's, that's fine, R.D., I sort of get that. Um, but then maybe you're a really clever one and you're thinking about times where science has apparently corrected things that we believe to be biblical convictions. Can you think of any of those? You know, where science has come alongside and said, well, in fact, in light of our recent discoveries, this, this observation and this reality not only illuminates and elucidates the biblical account of creation, but it actually radically changes and corrects it. I can think of one. It wasn't that long ago that all of human beings were convinced that the earth was at the center of our solar system and that everything, including the sun, revolved around the earth, right? It was called a, an anthropocentric universe, humans, man at the center. And then it was through scientific observation that we realized, oh no, in fact, that's not true. It's not an anthropocentric universe. It's actually a heliocentric universe. The sun is at the center of our solar system and everything goes around that. Well, maybe you'd look at that and say, well, gosh, R.D., there's a case where Science was right and the Bible was wrong. In fact, that's not true. There is no place in Scripture that requires the earth to be at the center. And there is no place in Scripture that prohibits the sun from being at the center. 
And so in that case, science was profoundly helpful because it exposed unbiblical or extra-biblical beliefs. Things that we had heaped on top of our understanding of creation. Here's the point. Whatever your understanding of the relationship between science and the Bible is, as Christians, we believe no more than the Bible. But we certainly hold no less. And so if something comes along in science that actually exposes something that was not biblical, but just a human fabrication that we treated as though it was true like Scripture, then we praise God for that and we embrace it. But we never concede a point to science when the Bible teaches explicitly otherwise. And so Scripture is clear as day. There is no Darwinian materialistic evolution. The Bible tells us that God created. Look, science is good. I have my bachelor's degree in science. Um, Through science, we have developed and extended the proximal horizon of our understanding and knowledge of the natural world. We've, We've pushed back darkness It's because of science that we have things like penicillin and you don't die from a strep throat. It's because of science that we have dental care. It's because of science that we have come to understand our place in the universe to some extent. You know, they launched the Voyager um, out into space and it just started traveling out into deep space and it took a picture back and showed that Earth was just what Carl Sagan called a pale blue dot right, at the middle of nothing. Carl Sagan thought that he was being really clever. But actually, that's a truth that's captured in Psalm 8, sermon for two weeks from now. Hold on to that one. The fact is, scientific theories are often disproved, but the word of God remains. Because Scripture goes to the deep matters. Who? Why? For what purpose? And we as Christians, we play fast and loose with that to our own peril. You know, when I was studying for the ministry and I began to encounter apparent problems that I had between science and the Bible, um, I did, with the best of intent, something that Christians ought never do. I conceded too much ground. In particular, around the creation account and the flood account. I found myself, you know, trying to be fancy and erudite and and trying to be clever and nuanced. And my intent was to try to make more people believe in the Bible and the God of the Bible. But actually what I was doing was giving up the Bible as the final authority. And so over the last several years, I've been reclaiming, taking the Bible at its word and struggling under it. And in places where I wish it didn't say things, I bow my knee to it and I say, I don't know how that happened. I don't know if there were, you know, penguins and tigers on the ark, but the Bible says it was a global flood, and so I'm going to embrace that and receive that by faith, coming under God's word.
And so let me say it clearly. Any effort that we use to shed off added human convictions to biblical truth is a good thing. That's good. And science can help us with that. But we always remain biblical. No more and certainly no less. These are the beliefs that we hold dear in the face of our changing secular, scientific, popular beliefs. Genesis 1.1 God created everything. The Hebrew heavens and earth is a technical term that is intended to encompass everything that exists. God created everything. He created everything from nothing. A claim that no science could ever make. And so we're going to look closely at Genesis chapter 1 in three sections. Okay, The first section is verses 1 to 2. In Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 to 2, God creates the cosmos. That's the very first thing that we see. This first act of creation in Genesis chapter 1 was a creative thrust by which God, we're told, created everything. Okay, so this is the biblical account. The very first thing that God did was to create everything, heavens and earth. We're told in verse 2 that this creative thrust created something that was formless. See that in, in, in verse 2? It was without form. It was void. It was empty. That it was covered in darkness. In Hebrew, we're told that it is primordial chaos that God first creates. Tohu v'bohu. And yet we're told in the second half of verse 2 that the Spirit of God was hovering over that chaos. So this is what we're told, okay? We're told in verses 1 to 2, God creates everything that exists in one massive sweep. Boom! There it is. It's abiding in that state of chaos. We don't know for how long. The Bible doesn't say. You know, a minute... A day, 10,000 years, 10 million years, we have no way of knowing. But that even in this state of chaos, he was hovering over it. And so we see that he is a personal God who cares about his creation. And friend, this is a point for you this morning. At those times where your life feels like primordial chaos where it feels formless and void, where it feels like it's covered in darkness, the Spirit of God hovers over it. If he can handle the primordial chaos of the cosmos, he's a God that's trustworthy with your chaos too. So this is Genesis 1. Verses 1 to 2. God in one sweep creates everything. And it's a mass of formless, voidless, formless, void, darkness, and chaos. 
And then in verses 3 to 25, God brings order to the creation. He does so in six creative thrusts. He differentiates and delineates the creation by his spoken word. So so let's just gather gains for a moment. The the biblical account here is that God pre-existed everything. That he created in one sweep something that was massive, this cosmos. that was formless and void and dark. And then with six words, with six declarations, he then specifies, delineates, and differentiates his creation from chaos into order. In verses 3 to 10, he frames the creation through differentiation. Look at verses 3 to 10. Light from darkness, day from night, waters above from waters beneath, sea and sky separated, earth and oceans, sea and dry land, all separated by his mighty word. He frames the cosmos. In verses 11 to 25, He fills the cosmos. Vegetation, we're told. Fruit trees, each according to its kind. Sun and moon, waters swarming, birds flying, all multiplying. Living creatures, according to their kind. Livestock, we're told. Creeping things. Beasts of the field. And here's the point now. This is God's creative miracle. In one massive act, he creates everything. And then in six subsequent thrusts, he differentiates and specifies. Friends, don't miss this point. Behold your God in this. God is the one who brings order from chaos. You see it all around you. You see it in an elegant universe where things actually work. You know, apart from this conviction that God has created this elegant universe, order from chaos, you could never even have a discipline like science because science is only predictive because we believe that it's an ordered universe where things happen and unfold in predictable ways. That's because God took chaos and made it into order. And yet, from the beginning, paganism seeks to do the opposite. It blurs distinctions in creation. It takes order and tries to drive it back towards primordial chaos. Well, this is the great reverse miracle that we see happening in the world all around us today. Attempts being made to remove and blur distinctions and differentiations that were created by God in the natural world. This is nothing short of satanic, pagan, anti-Christ, anti-God, anti-creation. From Satan's playbook. Seek to steal, kill, and destroy. 
in the Genesis account. God brings order from chaos through differentiation and distinction. All right, verses 26 to 31. So we've seen that God creates everything in the cosmos. God then differentiates the cosmos into order and beauty. Okay, that's... And now thirdly, in verses 26 to 31, we see that God creates man. So everything has been created. The distinctions in the created order have been established. The cosmos is framed and filled. And now the Lord God undertakes to create the crowning jewel of creation. Did you notice when Claudine was reading this that up until now, everything that God created was after its own kind, according to its own kind. That was repeated throughout those six thrusts of differentiating creation. Not so with man. Look at verse 26. Then God said, let us make man. What does it say? In our own image, after our likeness. And so God creates everything and dis- distinguishes it from, from one another within creation so that it might be and reproduce according to its own kind. But when he makes man, he says, I will make him in my image and after my likeness. And so I want to pull just two things from this because next Sunday we're going to talk about the doctrine of man in depth. But before, I just want to pull two things quickly this morning. The first one is God created humans as image bearers and the second one is as garden tenders. So first, as image bearers. Verse 26, let us... All the pronouns in this part of Scripture are plural when God refers to himself. That seem odd? Say, R.D., I'm not a polytheist. I don't believe in a whole bunch of gods. I'm a monotheist. I believe in one. You'd get a gold star for that, by the way, if you said that. So what's happening? Well, in in Hebrew, it says, um, let us make man in our own image. Then God said, and when it says, then God said, the Hebrew is Elohim, him being the plural ending. And already at the very onset of Genesis 1, we're catching glimpses of what will unfold in Scripture as the Trinity, one God in three persons. God having a conversation amongst himself, saying, let us create man in our image. So what does it mean, the image and likeness? It means that human beings are godlike in some ways. I think it means at the very least that we have the capacity for joining God in creation. You know, we um, are godlike because we procreate godlike beings. Consider the miracle. We're different than God because he creates ex nihilo out of nothing. We create We procreate out of existing materials and by his direction and governance. So we're godlike in that way. 
I also think it means that we're godlike because we have uh, capacity for sentience, self-awareness, and reason, compassion, morals, and ethics, unlike any other creature created on the sixth day. We carry the image of God. It means that we have the capacity for greatness. Anytime you behold a lovely work of art, you're seeing an expression of the greatness of humanity amongst creation. Every time you look at the development of technology, anytime you see altruism on display where human beings are self-sacrificing, this is an expression of the image of God. It's the human spirit at its best. But you say, yeah, R.D., but humans are not always great and good, are they? But we're going to get to that in two weeks. Sin takes that very thing and corrupts it within us. So now we not only have the capacity for unthinkable greatness, but at the same time, because of the twisted nature of our affections through sin, we also have this, you know, God-like power in its magnitude to be unthinkably wicked and cruel. It's quite a charge to be created in the image of God after his likeness. Let's, let's press into this a little bit further, this image bearing. Genesis 1.26, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Look at verse 27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. Now, Hebrew, the original language for this Genesis account, works similar to English in that man, in these circumstances, is intended to include both genders, male and female. But God, in inspiring this through Moses' authorship, did not want to leave that vague. So Genesis 1 pushes this, this, this even further. It says that the image of God is neither born nor carried exclusively with either of the genders. That's the logic of verse 27. This is a truth that would have been shocking to the original audience. The original audience would have read this and said, are you telling me that women are also image bearers along with men? This thing that we just take for granted in our world today. Well, that's not, that's not something to take for granted. That is because we are the inheritors of Judeo-Christian beliefs. That's a good thing. This belief that men and women are equal recipients of God's grace in creation. Created equal. Praise God for that. But if we press even further into this verse, we see something even more beautiful. God says, let us create man, humanity, in our image. And he says, male and female, he created them. What's going on? 
rooted right into the created order is this truth. That God creates men and women as equal recipients of his grace. He creates them as different in such a way that when they come together under his godly grace, they complement one another and they show forth the very image and the glory and the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them in his image after his likeness. You remove those distinctions, you remove those definitions, and you are performing that great reverse miracle. Chaos from godly order. Now, to be sure, we see it happening all around us, and this should be no surprise. But as Christian men and women committed to the Scriptures, we come to passages like this and we ask, what is good? What is best? What is God revealing to us in his world about what are the best parameters for human flourishing and thriving? So God created man in his own image. and the image of God, he created him. Male and female. He created them. We are created in the image of God. The second thing, and I'll only take one second on this, is that we are created not only in the image of God, so that when we come together, male and female, we express the very likeness of him in ways that we complement one another as two genders. But we're also told in this Genesis account that we are created as garden tenders, vice regents. Look at verse 26b, the second half. He says, God says, and let them, the humans, have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Dominion. Verses 28 to 30. And God blessed them, the humans, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. God created us in his image so that we would be his vice regents here on earth. So that we would tend to the creation. And in so doing, we would exert his will on his creation on his behalf. So God creates man in his image, in his likeness, male and female, as garden-tending vice regents. Verse 31. And God saw everything that he had made and behold it was very good and there was evening and there was morning the sixth day chapter 2 verse 1 friends thus the heavens and the earth were finished and all the host of them 
And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it, God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. God creates the cosmos. In six thrusts by his word, he differentiates it into something beautiful and elegant. He then creates man in his image. He then sits back and looks at it and says, it's good, it's lovely, it's beautiful. Now that statement from God in chapter 2 might be difficult for you to reconcile with the world you see around you. But the promise of the gospel is that God is redeeming a broken world. Let's press into this in conclusion. If you still have your Bible open, turn to the Gospel of John and look at John chapter 1. In John chapter 1, the Apostle John is reconciling his experience of Jesus Christ. He's being directed and guided and and by the Holy Spirit and inspired by the Holy Spirit to write this account. And here's what he says. He says, John chapter 1, verse 1, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Verse 3, all things were made through him. And without him was not anything made that was made. In Genesis chapter 1, we're told that God speaks the world into existence. In John 1, we're told that that word of God is God the Son, Jesus Christ. That actually now as Christians, with the benefit of the New Testament, we can go back to Genesis 1 and we see at every moment in Genesis 1, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, framing and sustaining the cosmos. And friends, that's good news because not only does God declare the creation good, but after Adam and Eve and every generation since have marred it with sin, we're reminded that God is not only our creator, but in Jesus Christ, he is our savior. That this broken, worn out world will be set back to good. Last week, I forgot to mention which of the 39 articles I was preaching from, and so I want to just read to you Article 1, because it ties in both from last week's sermon on who is God and also on what is creation. Article 1 says, There is but one living and true God, everlasting, without parts, body, parts, or passions, of infinite power, wisdom, and goodness. That was last week the maker and preserver of all things, both visible and visible. That's this week. And in the unity of this Godhead, there be three persons of one substance, power, and eternity, the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Nine times out of ten, sermons end with a point of practical application that goes something like, 
You used to be living in this way. In light of this truth about God, live a different way. And maybe you've picked up some of those along the way. But the primary application this morning is something simple. Just an invitation to behold your God. To look at everything in the created order as created by him and for him and sustained by him and being redeemed by him. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your word that never changes, but addresses the deep matters. I pray, God, that we would recommit ourselves to living under the good revelation that we see in your word. And that we would press ever more deeply into our trust and hope in Christ. I pray this in your name. Amen.